0: Welcome to season three of "This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley," a podcast about the Bay Area technology and culture. I'm your host Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host Yasha Kekiswold.
1: Hey, uh, Sunil, do you have a favorite like um, subscription newsletter that you get every day?
0: I have to admit, I don't have any subscription newsletters. But if I did subscribe to one, it would be our guests today.
1: Uh, Next Draft is legitimately, Sunil, my favorite newsletter. And I've subscribed to it for years now, but something pretty different has started to happen with Next Draft over the course of the last few years. And that really specifically is that kind of a technology and news, kind of interesting news, pop culture news, uh, uh, newsletter has turned into something that's a lot more political. And I think we're seeing that maybe more and more. So, you know, it it
0: is pretty interesting. And I've, I've been aware of Next Draft for a while but our guest today Dave Pell um, who I first came to know of on Twitter actually he's pretty he's pretty profound with his you know, with his views and he's not afraid to put himself out there um, and like you said the the newsletter really it sounds like reflects some of those some of those views and some of the candor that he exhibits today
1: Dave is an investor, uh, writer, publisher, um, and he's also a Bay Area native. I think he's a really interesting example for us that are in tech to look at when we're trying to consider what we might do if we want to adjust our platform to be in tune with the times politically. Uh, We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. We definitely did. Dave, thanks for taking time on this Friday afternoon to do the podcast with us. We appreciate you being here.
2: Great to talk to you guys. Great to have contact with anybody from the outside world during this quarantine period.
1: (laughs) Have you left your house at all?
2: Uh, I do leave my house. I've been saying since basically the third day of quarantine that there's a much higher probability of my kids killing me than the virus killing me. (laughs) So almost any excuse to get out of the house, whether it's going to the grocery store or just walking the dogs or faking an errand, I'm taking it. So I get out, but uh, I don't shower much and I don't interact with others much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) except on Twitter. But that doesn't really count, though, right? Nobody can tell that you haven't showered. They can't tell
2: I haven't showered, and I really never read what anybody else says there anyway. That's the pro tip for the day. (laughs) Are you a Bay Area native? Yeah, I grew up on the mean streets of San Rafael, uh, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, And I'm, aside from a couple years, maybe three years in New York and one year in Cambridge, outside of Boston, I'm a lifelong Bay Area
1: resident. I, honestly, I think, Sunil, we would have we done like 50 plus recordings. Dave, you might be like the fifth or sixth person who's a Bay Area native that we've talked to.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool experience, actually, in terms of what you guys are focused on, sort of life in the Silicon Valley and life in tech. Both my wife and I were living away from the Bay Area right before sort of enhanced CDs and CD-ROMs took off, and we both moved home at the same time. And uh, it's been pretty wild to see this sort of technology boom erupt and, you know, blow up around us and then erupt again. It's been cool to have a front row seat. It's not quite as fun anymore. But in those first few years of technology, it was fun to see all the excitement happening right in our backyard.
1: Well, I totally want to get back to the the not anymore fun comment. But but I'm really curious about uh, being a Bay Area native, and you said you, you left for a few years, but was this a place that you loved growing up? Was it a, a cool place to be a young person?
2: Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. I mean, I, growing up in Marin, it was definitely a lot different than it is today. It was always sort of considered sort of a wealthy community. With Back when I was growing up, we were sort of known for peacock feathers and hot tubs and cocaine. And a few pretty amazing rock and roll bands uh, lived in Marin from uh, Santana to journey to grateful dad. And uh, so that was always cool. And it was a cool place. It was a much more diverse place back then for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, the main way that it was really more diverse is that, the, I mean, I went to a public school, but just in general, the people you hung out with, some of their parents were uh, investors, some were tycoons and some were, you know, worked uh, at the local bookshop or, owned a little store. It was a pretty wide variety of people. And so we really didn't think about the stuff that sort of has hit Marin now. I find now Marin, there's a pretty tense conflict between the people who have lived here their whole lives and feel like they're sort of being forced out by the higher prices and the people moving out from San Francisco, largely in tech, but it's not just tech. It's, I think, representative of the the divide that we're seeing all across the country. But, um, I've had a few experiences, definitely in Marin, over the last few years, where I've heard from people about those tensions, and it's sad to see for sure.
1: Was um, was the the Marin area like? I guess was it what you felt like it should be back then? Now, let me let me say it a little bit different way. Marin had this very idealized kind of view from the outside, and. Think about the kind of protests that happened here, um, the even the creation of the malt here in, in the Marin area. Like there's so many progressive things that have happened here. Do you still feel like that view of kind of progressive Marin exists today? Is that a part of the change that you're seeing or, or is Marin? Um, well, actually, let me just flat out lay it out there. Like is Marin still an ideal place to be?
2: Well, I think in some ways it's ideal in terms of the, the level of beauty, the incredible weather, the smart people. Some of those things I don't think you can find anywhere else in the world. I mean, when I take my family on a vacation around the world, no matter where we go, me and my wife always say, you know, it's it's hard to really be shocked by beauty when you live in the San Francisco Bay Area. On the other hand, there's definitely been an economic change in Marin that's pretty dramatic since I was a kid. But the idea of it being this sort of very liberal, wholesome place, I think that exists politically. But in terms of actual interaction, I think it's probably a little overstated, even when I was a kid. I mean, BART goes a lot of places in our rapid transit system out here in the Bay Area. It goes a lot of places in the Bay Area, but it doesn't go to Marin. And even as a kid, I knew the reason that Marin voted down BART was not because it would get Marin residents to other places in the Bay Area. It was because it would bring other people in the Bay Area to Marin. And so a lot of the same racial issues deep down under the surface, under the political statements and the sort of loud liberal statements that exist everywhere in the country also exist in Marin. We might not vote that way, but unconsciously at least it's still there. There's still not a good enough mix. Right now I live uh, one, highway exit from Marin city. And there's really not much more interaction with the kids from Marin city today.
0: You know, one thing that I'll, I'll say is the only, uh, I think the only brown person in the conversation today, (laughs) um, and we're, we're having a week where, um, you know, we've had a pretty intense week as a country and I'll say this. I mean, right. I know this is not a podcast about Marin, but both of you happen to live there and we're on the subject. Just my perception. I have definitely thought about moving to Marin at various points in the past, but you know, am I wrong for saying that I feel like my perception is that it's too white?
2: Um, well, I definitely wouldn't say that your perception is wrong. If you feel that way, then, you know, it's probably real. I would say that there's an incredible variety of people here and a variety of not only political opinions, but personal behaviors. I mean, my wife is uh, Samoan, so my kids are brown. Um, I'm, I'm the only white guy in my family. I live with my mother-in-law also. A few years ago when my nephew graduated from Brown and I was uh, in the student store during his graduation at Brown University, I saw they had some hats that said Brown Dad. And so I bought one of those and wore it home and I always wear it around the house to try to fit in a little bit more around my own house. So this is an issue, definitely uh, multiculturalism that is both in my house and in my life on a constant basis. There, there, There is mixing and there are good things happening if you seek it out. And earlier this week, actually, for one of the few times I actually really did leave the house and go into a crowd, uh, a friend of mine um, put on a protest in Marin City, uh, you know, a Black Lives Matter protest, uh, protesting uh, the police treatment of um, African Americans and the George Floyd uh, incident, and it was an incredible uh, mixture of people from all walks of life and all different races, ethnicities, and cultures and genders—kids, elderly people—and it really was great. And of uh, all the years I've been a parent in Marin, which is definitely different than being a kid here. Um, the best experience I've had so far is there's a dad at uh, my son's school in corner Madera that helped start the Marin city CYO basketball program. And so about half the kids on the team that my son has been on each year live in Marin city and about half the kids go to uh, the private school in corner and that Um, diversity and mixture of all the kids and families on the team has been like a great experience from kids from all of the different neighborhoods. And it's been a great way for us to learn about each other. It's why I know the guy who put on the, uh, rally in Marin city, why I was there. And it's just been great to see the communities come together, but an effort definitely has to be made. Um, I know people personally that live in Marin who wanted to go to that rally but felt afraid to go there because of these stereotypes that are so ingrained in people. So I don't know that Marin is really, I don't think it's that much different than anywhere else in the Bay Area in this area, in this way. But it, it is definitely an example of one of those places where people speak liberal but act a different way.
0: Yeah, totally. There is a lot of that in Bay Area and tech in general. I want to get into that a little bit later. But you know, one thing, and the reason that we brought you on is, I mean, you know, about the news. <laughs> if there is one thing that we can say about you, you you understand news and information and how it's distributed. I first came to know of you just randomly finding you on, on Twitter uh, as kind of one of the, the preferred people that I follow, <laughs> that uh, that you know you should follow in technology, and you always have something interesting to say, uh, whether I agree or anyone agrees or not. No one can deny that you're a very interesting guy. <laughs> um, what's your take on the current state of media? Are you optimistic, pessimistic? Give us your just your assessment. Grade the media for us.
2: Yeah, there's almost nothing that I'm terribly optimistic about right now. This is, a, I think, a pretty low point in American culture in general. Uh, the media is certainly part of that. Um, The hammering down of the media by Trump has, to us, might seem laughable or might seem dangerous. But as we've seen over the last week of the responses to the protests, some people see it as a marching order. And there's been so many uh, people in the media who have been hurt or arrested, even on camera by police in the last week. It just shows you how ingrained this message is and how receptive uh, people are to the media as being the enemy of the people. Um, that's more of a Trump answer. On the media itself, I think the media, the biggest problem that the media had during the Trump's rise to power was their obsession with him and um, their failure to see how much danger he represented. And therefore they gave him an unbelievable amount of uh, coverage time compared to uh, Hillary or any other topic, really. I mean, if you look at cable news today, it's 100% Trump, 24-7. I mean, Fox... And MSNBC and CNN don't have much in common except that one thing. All they cover is Trump 24-7. So I see that happening again to a certain extent. I see 59 minutes on Trump's idiotic remarks about um, being aggressive or using the military against uh, protesters on American soil. And then I see one minute of Biden uh, making the opposite comment. And I think that's my biggest concern right now in the media with the media is that we're making the same mistake we made in 2016. And in some ways, I think the pressure uh, to keep it that way is even greater now because in the last three and a half years, there's been just a ton of people who have become media stars based almost exclusively around the Trump era. Like their entire brand is anti-Trump. And that I think, to a certain extent, that fame and that notoriety and that uh, livelihood even goes away with Trump disappears because people aren't going to want to listen to politics twenty four seven if this ends in, in in November, which we hope it will.
0: So, well, so I have a question on that. I want to can... drill in. Sure. Oh, I know. So this is we're doing this on on uh, on Zoom to our to our listeners. We're having you know, Yasha and I make the joke now that we talk over each other. I won't rehash that joke for this episode, but um, but but my question is. You, you make a point, which is I also see these stars being minted in conservative media because of, because of Trump essentially. Um, what do you think about this sort of, sort of hypothesis? Just, you know, so one thing that they've figured out the conservative media that, you know, the, the quote unquote liberal media hasn't maybe figured out is, you know, we are really diligent on the liberal side about fact checking, getting things right, sources, et cetera. And, you know, 99 stories can be right, but it's that one wrong one that you get killed for. Um, on the other side, if you get one story, right, you know, like you throw a bunch of stuff out there, then it's marketed differently where, you know, you look like you look like an all knowing genius. If you get it right. Is that, is that a good theory or is that an incorrect theory?
2: I think it's a good theory, but it's, it's based, I think, um, on a fallacy in your question, which is comparing Fox to liberal media, the whole reason why we have this discussion about conservative versus liberal media is a creation of Fox News and is a creation of the alt right uh, on news sites and creating conspiracy theories on the internet. There's there's one media that is focused on facts. There's one media that is focused on the values of liberal democracy. And then there's another media that lies, is entertainment, and is about uh, perpetuating falsehoods in order to keep one side in power and hopefully to keep their own ratings up. So this isn't to say that uh, mainstream media doesn't care about ratings and money. I alluded to those factors already. But the whole idea that there's a liberal media and a conservative media, media is i think a falsehood that's one of the biggest problems and one of the most effective tools that fox and further right uh media outlets have created to their benefit and to the detriment of society as a whole there's truth and there's lies those are the two types of media that i focus on i don't i don't take it that there's a if somebody who is somebody who's arguing that we shouldn't have troops come out and fire tear gas on our own communities is that a liberal position no that's a truth and it's what democracy is based on, and we see generals coming out and supporting that position. So, if anything, the the mainstream media has been too soft on Trump because they're so concerned about not appearing liberal. It's created these false equivalencies that are damaging to our society as a whole. It just—I think it should be taken out of the the conversation completely. There's truth and there's lies. Period.
1: How? Um. How? I guess how would would you? recommend somebody spend their time if they if they're not you if they're not the editor of the internet and know where to look like if you want to get good news where do you go right now
2: well i mean for one thing i would advise people not to get too swept up in it because it can be debilitating it can be overwhelming and there's nothing healthy about a society where all the citizens are spending 24 hours a day screaming at each other about politics, right? We're a representative democracy. We're not like, shouldn't all be in the pit 24/7 screaming at each other. We have much more in common than we have that separates us. So I would avoid it to a certain extent and let the addicts like me serve as sort of a filter. Um, In terms of places where I would actually get news, I mean, the New York Times makes mistakes but they've done an incredible job, I think, covering uh, part of the last three years. The number one source, I would probably would say, that's getting the story the most right over the last three years is The Atlantic. I think of all old school publications, The Atlantic in general has made the best transition to new media of any of them. And um, I just think that they've been right the most. If you would ask me this three years ago, I'd say maybe they're a little bit extreme about the threat that Trump represents, and maybe some of their views are a little out of the mainstream. But... By the time, this time last week, all doubts about that have been erased and they really have been on the mark. So I would I would highly recommend that. I think the Washington Post uh, has done a great job. I mean, all of it, of course, when it comes to the opinion columns, you have to read it with all with a grain of salt. But in terms of the actual news, I think they they've done a pretty good job. And I know those are very mainstream publications mm-hmm. and maybe not exactly what you were looking for, but I actually, I don't fault Uh, publications for being successful or mainstream. Um, There's other publications that have done a great job, but I think you do get a good, well-rounded story from those. If anything, like I say, I think uh, certain publications, if if the Times has aired, it's been on being too forgiving of Trump and waiting too long to use the word lies. And you're going to see a dramatic shift in the next few months, not because the election's coming. That's what Trump will try to position it as. But the big shift actually is when Mattis and the other generals spoke out uh, this week about the threat of using uh, the military to put down protests in the United States. When you have people that are that hesitant to talk about the threat that we're facing, speak out in such forceful terms, and really several of them together, Mm -hmm. you know that it's a serious situation. But that also gave a green light to people like the New York times and the Washington post to say, Hey, maybe we're maybe we should start calling this how we really see it and stop worrying about false equivalents.
1: Yeah. Have you always been a politically minded person?
2: I'm definitely have always been politically minded. My, I, my parents are both Holocaust survivors. So I grew up, our, our dinner conversation every night was anti-Semitism, news and politics. And that's basically my parents are in their nineties now, and it's pretty much continued to this day. Mm Uh, most everything I, my perspective on all these issues is really formed by, uh, their, their positions on them. Uh, especially my dad, I'm definitely, even though in this interview, I probably sound like an extreme liberal. I'm actually, uh, you know, I'm an investor. I'm pro capitalism. I'm, I consider myself a mainstream Democrat, not a far left necessarily. Um, but I've always been politically minded during the early days of the Internet. I was actually one of the first bloggers to uh, uh, cover a Democratic convention uh, during the Kerry convention. They had 30 bloggers cover the convention. And I used to write a blog back in those days. In Next Draft, I really wanted to be uh, apolitical and cover things from not a totally unpolitical realm, but at least not focus it on politics. Yeah. I wanted to focus on general news, but the last three years have forced me to do this. So I'm actually, next draft is not something I want it to be or I ever aspired, it, aspired for it to be. I get a lot of unsubscribes. I get a lot of hate mail. But I just think the situation right now is so dire and so serious that to pretend anything is not political today is a mistake.
1: So th- I think that's a super uh, meaningful statement. And this is really a, one of the hearts the uh, The question that I want to get to with you in this conversation next draft didn't at least my introduction to it and kind of what I fell in love with it for wasn't because of uh the kind of bent on politics and kind of it's become that, and I appreciate it, but I also look around the world who uh, maybe have some people that represent themselves similarly to you that have great newsletters and are considered to be experts in the news and and they haven't made the kind of the leap that you have and 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 you just said you had to do it so i'm really curious about the calculus like how do you take the general news and technology curation that you've been focusing on and make the transition into politics like was it just natural for you did you think about it at all did you want to stop were you worried about doing it like how how did you get next draft to where it is right now why why did it happen
2: all right, so I'll give a, three, a three-part answer, but they'll all be short. The, the first part is that Next Draft, above all, has always been personality-driven. So Next Draft is what the day's most fascinating news, according to me. So it's my voice. It's what I find fascinating. It's not intended to be an exhaustive news source. It's, this is it's sort of a modern-day column. If the column was as a form was invented today, I think it would be a lot of takes with a few links, and that's what Next Draft is. So this is what's on my mind. So this is what's in Next Draft. The second issue is just pure mechanics. There is no other news right now. There's even during this pandemic, I do get emails from people who like Next Draft and they've been readers for a long time. They say, can't you just take one day off from Trump and the pandemic and give us some other news? But I challenge anybody to go and find 10 stories in any given day that are not about one of those two topics right now. It's actually really hard. Everybody is on those stories. You look at some of the biggest stories that are broken about Trump, and they're broken by reporters who three, four years ago were on different beats, but now they're on the Trump beat, because that is the story. The third reason really is that, what I talked about earlier, I am the child of Holocaust survivors. Um, Not my dad fought with the partisans. He's, uh, you know, I am here because he, he got a hold of a gun and was able to kill the right people before they killed him. He's far from a bleeding heart liberal. But when Trump started using the language that he used in the uh, lead up to the 2016 election, my dad said, "Um, you know, this guy sounds a lot like Hitler to me. And I said, yeah, but he's a big joke. Everybody laughs at Trump. He said, well, go back and look at the history of Hitler. Everybody made fun of him when he first started out too. And my dad wasn't being hysterical. He's the least hysterical guy in the world. He wasn't saying that this is gonna be Europe in World War II, but he was saying that these, this language and this style uh, did represent a threat that he saw. And, um, you know, I took that seriously because he doesn't say those type of things lightly. And now my dad's 96 and every time I get together with him, he says, you know, I never thought I'd live to see the day where fascism and anti-Semitism would rise to the level it was when I was a kid growing up. But today I see it as, as being as bad and in some ways even worse than it was when I was a kid. And this is a guy who lost his whole family in, in the Holocaust. He was the only one of only two people from his whole town to survive. So when he says that, I take it seriously. And because uh, of that, and because I have the freedom to speak my mind, I don't have a brand. Uh, that can tell me how to behave or what to say. I'm not uh, financially dependent on next draft, so I can use it for what I want to use it for. And even though it doesn't always feel good to have it become this thing that's not universally loved, not that it ever was universally loved, but it was certainly uncontroversial before. To to get into this controversy doesn't feel good, but I feel like considering what my parents sacrificed to, to give me the ability to do that, I owe it back to them and to people around me to say what I think is true because I'm not just speaking for myself, I'm speaking for people who have seen it firsthand.
0: So um, I'm really curious to, to dig into this more. You sound like a person with a deep appreciation for history and you know we you know if you had told me six months ago we were going to live through a global pandemic, I you know would have laughed at you and all sorts of stuff is happening that. I had no idea what happened, but in your best guess, you know, what is a worst case scenario right now? Describe a worst case and describe a best case and I'll define it, um, a little bit, uh, more, um, worst case with election, best case with election, worst case with economy, best case with economy and then similar for just social issues over the next I don't know, 12 to 18 months.
2: Yeah. uh Um, Those are tough questions, but I'll try. I would say, I mean, worst case for the pandemic is that these protests that have taken place, understandably, lead to massive outbreaks in the places where the curve was starting to flatten, like New York, Um, and because it's already rising in other places of the country, and we've had a hard enough time stopping it from a national perspective. even when it was just in a few big cities and now it's spreading to the south and other parts and small towns. So really is the worst case with that is that it starts to spread and it spreads to places that are much more ill-equipped to deal with it than um, the big cities who had a hard enough problem as it is. Uh, And the biggest problem associated with that is that Uh, The Trump administration has basically decided to pretend it's not happening anymore. They don't have press conferences on it anymore. It wasn't a winning issue for them. So they moved on to something that Trump sees as a much more winning issue, which is what he ran on, birtherism, racism, uh, dividing people. So the the big threat there is that 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 focus on those topics um, and the absence of the federal government uh, makes the pandemic 10x worse than it already is and it already is probably 10x worse than it would have been with a decent administration. Uh, the economy, I, you know, that's much harder to predict even than a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, I think, because we have such a bizarre divide right now where you have the stock market almost back to where it was at the beginning of the pandemic, and everybody I know, including investors, sitting back and saying, this doesn't make any sense, even with the Fed putting money into the system, what are people seeing what are the positives out there that people are seeing we have historically high unemployment we have a huge divide we have political unrest we have um america's role in the world diminishing we have fights with china we have terrible decisions being made at every turn basically the worst case decision is being made by the administration and yet the stock market keeps going up and bread lines keep getting longer so the threat really is, is that the investor class becomes uh, has a feeling of ease uh, about the current state, which makes it even more likely we won't do anything to help the people who are getting screwed over by the current state of affairs. So that that's really my biggest worry that you know people who can work from home, people who can stay safe, uh, will. And their stocks keep going up, and their businesses in the tech industry keeps getting bigger and making more money. And the people whose lives really depend on getting out there and doing their job in a growing economy and more fairness in the economy will continue to get more screwed over. And I think we're seeing yeah. that all, all all along the lines. So that that's really my biggest I, uh, worry about is that the election. That I mean, you it's don't, pretty dire. Doesn't get counted. Yeah, I yeah, know. I'm not that optimistic. You know, but. I'm not saying these things will happen. I'm mostly focusing on the on the bad stuff. And and, and the election, it would be that, uh, you know, the votes don't get counted or there's some dispute. He doesn't leave office, which is the most realistic scenario of all the ones I've described so far. On the flip side, um, just to show that I'm not, or to indicate my true feelings that I'm not so negative, with the pandemic, I've seen, even with a complete vacuum of almost anti-leadership at the top, I've seen unbelievable acts of leadership at the local, state levels, of individuals, of neighbors helping neighbors, of nurses helping patients, of people wearing masks, helping each other, delivering groceries to elderly people, neighbors coming together, working together. Um, And it's even harder to do that stuff when you don't have that leadership from the top. So that's a really promising thing even though there's the threat of the pandemic and even though we have the scaled leadership at the top, we have these unbelievable multicultural protests going across 50 states. Like people are more awake about these issues than ever before. And I think people realize for the first time in my lifetime that these gifts of liberal democracy and these gifts of freedom don't just happen. You have to work for them. It's a constant fight. I always come back to the, um, the, M.L.K. quote: "The arc of freedom bends towards justice." I like the idea of that quote, but I actually think it's a little off. It's the arc of us. Uh, uh, sorry, the arc of history. That the arc of history has to be bent. It doesn't bend towards justice. It has to be bent. And I think people. So. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. That. Sorry, keep. I, I yeah, just yeah, think yeah. No, people I was gonna... forgot that. I, I'm curious
0: yeah no and i I really am enjoying seeing that I mean it really this, the events of this past week, though unfortunate with the with the murder of George floyd really woke me up too to just you know having to take a a basic sense of civic responsibility, take ownership over it, and contribute to the community in some way because otherwise the community turns into something that you can't even recognize um, and um, that, that, that was a huge realization for me. I was going to ask you, and then I know, um, Yasha has a couple of wrap up questions, but, um, who do you think, I mean, you, you study the news, you see a lot of people who is the most important person that we haven't heard of if things are going to turn around. Is there a person that you would point to that is in politics or tech or any walk of life that you think, oh my gosh, a lot is riding on this individual or this group of very, very small people. And if they get it right, we're on a good trajectory.
2: Yeah, I actually do. Um, it's a group of people, and that's corporate leaders. And the reason I say that is because I really think this was a watershed week with Mattis and the other generals finally speaking out what, of course, we all know they've thought since day one. Uh, but they were reticent to speak ill of a president uh, for obvious reasons, but now they felt it went too far. But this week you not only saw military leaders do that, you also saw religious leaders do that when Trump used the Bible as a prop in front of the uh, St. John's church in DC. And so you're starting to have these huge, um, these leaders of these huge swaths of America speak out. And the one that you haven't really heard yet is corporate America. And I think in general, it's not that they don't agree with the, philosophy is being shared uh, by the military or leaders right now, but it's because they feel like they need some safety in numbers. Uh, They don't want to be singled out. Trump has done a great job of scaring uh, corporations by making negative tweets about them or getting his uh, followers to threaten to boycott them. So people sort of want to keep their heads down, but the time to keep our heads down really is over at this point. So I'm hoping that somebody will be able to organize a group of corporate leaders to come out and say that this is not the way America is being run right now is not appropriate. Um, and I think that that probably is the biggest uh, shoe to drop if we're going to get the thing back on the right track by November.
1: Do you do you think that any particular companies are more important than others?
2: Uh I think sort of big mainstream brands, I, I would say tech because we're out here and we demand a lot from them, even though we've been let down quite a bit. Uh, but no, I think it's just big, huge uh, name brands, Coke, uh, Home Depot, well, Home Depot won't because that guy is a big Trump supporter, but just the huge brands that you see at the mall and in your supermarket.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and I, don't get me wrong, they don't have to come out and say, hey, <laughs> Trump is terrible. They just have to come out and celebrate the ideals of democracy and the ideals of America, which doesn't seem like that much to ask, but it turns out it is.
1: Um, It doesn't seem like that too much to ask. Um, Thank you for the time today, Dave. This has been a a really important and and good conversation. We appreciate it. We've got one last question for you, and we ask this to all of our guests. You spend a lot of time on Twitter um, and, and maybe other networks, but you don't have to say if you don't want. What we do want you to do is make a recommendation on an important follow on Twitter, maybe, and another network, if you choose, that our listeners should pay attention to moving forward.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, I really only do Twitter. If you, Twitter and Pornhub are my two sites of choice. <laughs> um, so I'll keep the latter to my, myself. But uh, I, I, I had a few that I would suggest on Twitter. One is a guy named Don Winslow. And, uh, he's a really great author, wrote a, a trilogy about the cartels, um, in Mexico and, um, about an American that was also working in the so-called war on drugs. And it's an unbelievable trilogy. His recent book also is called Broken. It's a book of short stories. He writes a lot about police and, uh, their relationship with the citizenry, which is, pretty timely but he's just a really smart guy and really tells it like it is and he's very connected in the worlds of government and um police and he tells things how they are and he's i think a very good follow uh, another one is on twitter sleeping giants and that's like a organization it's really just one person but or one or two people but they basically let brands know when their advertising is showing up adjacent to alt-right or even neo-Nazi material on the web. And they let them know about it. And a lot of times those uh, brands are removing their ads. So uh, they've been a big thorn in people like Steve Bannon's side. So they're great. Uh, for the pandemic stuff, Andy Slavitt is uh, probably my favorite follow. And his stuff is now – his, he does these Twitter threads and they're being, uh, republished on medium, uh, every day. So you can find them there too. If you just search for Andy Slavitt on medium, that's actually the best place to read his Twitter threads on the pandemic. And he's really informative, both from your personal behavior stuff, what's safe all the way to the macro level of the government response. Um, and I actually worked with him and medium to get, get those tweet threads to a wider audience. Uh, Two others, Soledad O'Brien is really excellent because she holds the media, um, the mainstream media's put to the fire in terms of um, what kind of headlines they choose and false equivalency and if they're being honest enough and if they're calling a lie a lie. And then the last one is more fun, a guy named Billy Corbin, who people may have seen his documentaries, Cocaine Cowboys, was I think his first big one. Big one, he did... a. Uh, I've one on steroids and baseball called screwball and he's done a few of the thirty by thirties, thirty for thirties on ESPN. And I love following him because he lives in Miami and he constantly tweets about weird and bizarre things happening in Miami and he ends almost all those tweets with just two words because Miami. And I just get a kick out of it and find it fun to follow him. So that's that's a fun one. Our interview has been pretty serious, but really 99% of my life is joking around. So <laughs> these, it's, a, it's a strange time. So I guess we have to focus on those important issues. But uh, I, I like the funny stuff also.
1: We appreciate that. I really appreciate you being with us today, Dave. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, Sunil, did that conversation, maybe just at the beginning of it, make you want to move to Marin?
0: That conversation makes me want to take a long nap and watch a Disney movie.
1: It's uh, it's sometimes uh, tough to have conversations that are about kind of the truth about what's really happening. And I appreciate the candor that Dave had. Um, I think he shows that in his public persona as well, but it's super nice to be able to have a conversation with him and kind of just feel the earnestness in the way that he goes about putting together content that he thinks is going to be useful for people.
0: You know, we we have a lot of different types of guests on the podcast. Some of the interviews are funny. Some of them are lighthearted. I mean, if we were going to have a serious, you know, topic discussion, uh, he is the right person to have it with and he's direct. He knows what he's talking about and he has good perspective.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as Sunil and I, enjoyed recording it, please go back to the application you found this podcast on, rank us five stars, leave us a comment. We read every single one. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley.